This is Democracy in Danger. We're here with Desmond Mead. He's the executive director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition and a 2021 recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship. He holds a JD from the Florida International University and is the author of a recent book called Let My People Vote. Desmond and his organization have been instrumental in advocating for the passage of Amendment 4, which changed the Constitution of Florida in 2018, restoring civic rights to formerly incarcerated people, or Desmond, as you prefer to call them, returning citizens. So uh, just last month, I heard you had your civil rights restored under Amendment 4 in Florida, and I, I just wanted to start by offering you a big, heartfelt congratulations. It must be so gratifying. Well, thank you so much. What I experienced last week, you know, as far as the restoration of my civil rights was um, a very special moment. Uh, And just to clarify, you know, what we did with Amendment 4, the initial impact was that there was a restoration of my voting rights. You know, in the state of Florida, once you, a person is convicted of a felony offense, they lose their civil rights uh, basically for life. And the civil rights include the right to vote, the right to serve on a jury, uh, the right to run for office, as well as, you know, feeling the impact of other collateral consequences that's associated with the loss of civil rights. What Amendment 4 did was exclusively restore the right to vote back to individuals once they've completed their sentence. For instance, in my case, uh, once we passed Amendment 4, I was able to vote. However, I didn't have the remaining of my civil rights restored. So even though I was able to vote, I still could not run for office. I still could not serve on a jury. I still could not practice law, even though I have a law degree. And of course, I still found it difficult to own or even rent a home in Florida because many uh, subdivisions would have provisions written within their bylaws that would prevent someone like me from owning or even renting a home until their civil rights have been restored. And so the rest of my civil rights was what was restored to me. And that was through the clemency process? That was through the clemency process. Now, uh, I have to note that the clemency process had changed, and we were instrumental in helping that process change uh, in March of this year. Uh, Prior to March of this year, you know, the clemency process was long and arduous. Uh, It was a very arbitrary uh, process that was rife with political, I would say political contamination or influence. Um, And so it was extremely difficult where people were waiting upwards of 10 plus years uh, before they were able to get their their rights restored. And uh, this new process, however, uh, brought on in in, in March of this year, basically we had the clemency board declare that anyone who qualified for Amendment 4 would also automatically qualify to have the rest of their civil rights restored. And so that just started this year. Uh, and we're still trying to figure out uh, the processes in that uh-huh. uh, to see how quickly a person uh, would be able to get their rights restored. So that new process takes out some of the capricious nature of the former process. And h- how did you manage to get Ron DeSantis to agree to this? 
that, that, you know, that's a good question, you know, because we've been we've been working on the clemency process um, since uh, as long as I can remember. You know, um, the uh, coalition uh, before it became an entity, a coalition was formed in 2003 to address this. Uh, and I know uh, when I joined in the early 2000s, we were lobbying uh, the administration when it was under Governor Charlie Chris, and then when it was under Governor Rick Scott, you know, and even under DeSantis, and no one really budged, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were quite thrilled uh, that after we passed Amendment 4, we gave the governor, uh, we kept uh, interacting with his office and and we gave the governor some recommended um, changes to the current clemency process. And we were surprised when he adopted uh, most, if not all, of our recommendations. Uh, we have to think that part of the reason for that is in spite of the fact that the legislature under his uh, urging did pass uh, a statute that required the payment of outstanding legal financial obligations before an individual uh, would be able to register to vote, uh, there were still hundreds of thousands of returning citizens who uh, could register immediately because they didn't owe anything. Right. And so this is a governor who he barely won his race. I think he won his race by approximately 30,000 votes. If you're having uh, potentially five, 600,000 uh, new voters who are returning citizens, you know, I, I would figure that he would have to do something to, uh, um, I guess, look good, you know, in front of people who, you know, have previous felony convictions who could now vote. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. It's as if the political pressure was just a little too high. Yep. Desmond, I was wondering if you could take us back a little bit to your personal journey so our listeners have some context on why this issue has meant so much for you. You grew up in Florida, right? What was your life as a kid and then as a young man like? You know, uh, when we we talk about, you know, my early upbringings, I'll tell you, it it is. (laughs) There's enough to write about four books on, right? But uh, there is, you know, a lot of it is in my book, uh, Let My People Vote. And it give us the Cliff Notes version. Yeah. In it I talk about, you know, just really having a, a very uh adventurous life, you know, starting from uh, me being born in the Virgin Islands to moving to the United States at a very young age and you know, and just the different interactions that I've had that have actually informed who I am today as a person. You know, I was with my mom and dad and, and eventually they separated and so I was spending time between uh, South Florida and the Midwest, you know, in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, having a very, very interesting experience in doing that uh, because I went from one extreme to the other, not just from the hot to the cold, but even from the culture, you know, uh, in in South Florida, attending a predominantly African-American school and in in the Midwest, attending a predominantly uh, white American school, right? You know, which eventually led me to joining the military where, where I was eventually court-martialed. Uh, when I got back home, I uh, just started working in the field of executive protection, you know, being basically a bodyguard. And, you know, it was a lot, a series of ups and downs. Uh, what was prominent, uh, especially in my uh, older, uh, I would say more advanced teenage years around, you know, 17 16, 17, 18, and throughout my military career was my use of drugs, 
um, and and that use of drugs caused me to have, uh, you know, to get discharged in the military. And uh, when I came back home and started uh, becoming a bodyguard, you know, eventually uh, started that habit back up and it took me uh, to some very dark places. Right. And, you know, it's interesting now that the opioid epidemic is so prominent in the news and it affects primarily demographically, right? Poor white Americans. There's more understanding, it seems, of addiction and what that can do to somebody's life. But, you know, you grew up in a time when it was like the era of uh, mandatory minimum sentences and, you know, lock people away. Well, you know, the typical the typical narrative is, OK, now that uh, we have an opioid crisis and the majority of people who are on opioids are white, there's a different approach to dealing with drug addiction. And it's more coming from a health perspective as opposed to coming from, uh, say, a criminal justice or punitive perspective. And the problem that you know I think I have with that is that I, I do believe that even during the, the crack pandemic or the cocaine pandemic, Americans use drugs basically at the same rate, right? Right. And so even in the crack era or, or the cocaine era, there was many more white people that was uh, using uh, these drugs than there were African-American. However, however... The difference that we see now is that the use of drugs was an excuse by the administration to specifically target the African-American community. Right. And so it was used as a mechanism because there was an objective there. Right. And and you look at, you know, the prison privatization and and, and the, the amount of profiting that was going into housing uh, uh, bodies in institutions. And you also look at um, gentrification, right, uh, that we're seeing. And gentrification is always preceded by over-policing of a community, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, I, I, so I do believe that, you know, a lot of what we saw during the crack era was a, a result of a, a much larger objective other than actually battling drugs. But to look at it, to approach drug abuse from an enforcement standpoint, as opposed to approaching what we're seeing now, drug abuse, from a more rehabilitative or more health-leaning uh, approach. It, it reminds me of what a long history uh, there is in the South in particular in making use of the criminal justice system to ensure white supremacy, right? So the very laws in Florida that you were, the constitution in Florida that you were trying to get changed has its roots in the Jim Crow era, right? Like It does. What's the background there? It does. And and I think, you know what, we go even deeper than that, right? I think white supremacy is a major play in it, but let's go deeper. You know, when we look at the Jim Crow laws, Felon disenfranchisement, just like literacy tests, just like poll taxes, uh, were used in such a way to diminish the political capital that was gained by the newly freed slaves. What you see is an attack against democracy. I mean, back then it was uh, Dixie Democrats that was leading the charge. Today you see Republicans leading the charge. And, and, and I think the heart 
of the issue is about how people are viewing democracy or what do they think democracy is supposed to be. And in our heads, we're like, listen, we're in a country where the citizens should have a say in how their communities are being governed. But there are people who are in office that believe the opposite, that citizens should not have that much say and that it should be left up to politicians to decide what's best for the community and its constituents. And those that believe that seek to limit the access that the regular citizens would have to democracy. So I wanted to ask you how you got involved in the process to begin with. You you got out of prison you went back to school, you earned a degree, you earned a law degree after that. And, you know, what drew you to this struggle? <laughs> my own struggle. <laughs> what drew me to this struggle was my own struggle. Uh, well, I'll go back to 2001 when I was sentenced to 15 years for possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. And I remember um, when the judge handed his sentence down, how my knees buckled and I thought my life was over. But when I got to prison, I worked on my case, and eventually I was able to get my case reversed and remanded uh, for a new trial. And when I went back for a new trial, uh, we was able to strike a deal with the state where I would plead guilty and I would be sentenced to three years. And because I already served those three years, uh, not too long after we was able to work the plea deal out, was I released from prison in 2004. And when I tell people that even though I was released from prison, you know, I still was incarcerated mentally because I still had a substance abuse uh, a problem. Now, I didn't use drugs while I was incarcerated, and I thought I was okay with drugs. But the minute I hit the streets, I was back to using drugs, you know, and in less than a year after being released, I found myself standing in front of railroad tracks waiting on a train to come so I can jump in front of it. Okay. You know, I'm standing there. I'm, I'm addicted to crack cocaine. I am, I'm homeless. I don't have a job. The only thing I own were the clothes on my back. And I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Fortunately, the train didn't, didn't come that day. And I ended up crossing the tracks, and I, I walked a few blocks further, and, and I checked myself into a drug treatment facility. And while there, really uh, contemplating my death, I had a transformation, I should say, uh, of who Desmond was, you know, wondering uh, who would come to my funeral when uh, when I die. Right. What have I done on this earth, on this planet while living here? Right. And so it just so happened that Rosa Parks passed. And when I seen the outpouring of love that she uh, received uh, after she passed, I, I, I was inspired to plan my own funeral and, and where I landed, you know, basically was since I couldn't be an actor, since I couldn't be an athlete, that I would have to be someone who could take uh, their own experiences, the pain and the suffering and the low self-esteem that led me to those railroad tracks and shape it in such a way that it would help other people. And that's what started uh, me on my path to engage in activism, to engage in advocacy, to make sure that I did something that had a positive impact in people's lives so that when I die, I'll be properly mourned. Wow. I mean, what you took on was such an uphill battle. Just to get the initiative on the ballot took more than 700,000 signatures, right? And I'm just wondering, did you... 
worry at times that it it was going to fail? I mean, and 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 how how did you struggle with that? You know, I'm smiling while, when when you were asking that question because uh, <laughs> we had to collect over a million signatures. And let me tell you, yes, there were times when I was like, man, are we ever going to make this thing happen? You know, but those were fleeting moments uh, because, you know, I think deep down inside, I really did believe that we were going to be successful Uh, in spite of the fact that, you know, all of the experts were saying no. Everybody thought I was crazy. I, I tell folks if my mother was alive at the time, she would probably think I was crazy, too. Uh, for taking on this task. But there was something that was deeper than just, you know, my superficial worries. Uh, there was something that that was all the way in my soul um, that, that told me that I was on the right track. Um, and I like to tell folks that, you know, hey, I was, this movement was uh, divinely inspired and divinely led. And at the end of the day, uh, in spite of any doubt I may have, I held on to the faith that we were doing the right thing, right? Because when you look back to the civil rights movement, they didn't have polling and focus groups and research groups that tell them to engage in, in, in that fight. And it's probably a good thing, too. That's right, because they would have been discouraged. Right. But the reality was they felt that it was the right thing to do. And, and, and I do believe that if you are, 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 are convinced that what you're doing is the right thing, then you don't stop. You don't let anyone discourage you. You continue to do it. And if it is the right thing, uh, good is going to come from that. Yeah. You know, I read the New York Times Magazine profile on you that was published a couple of years ago in the midst of that battle. And I, it was really curious because it started with the story of Neil Voles, who ended up working with you. But he's a sort of Newt Gingrich era Republican congressional staffer and then later an operative and then got wrapped up in the Jack Abramoff lobbying scandal, ended up a convict, did community service, got probation. It was a kind of light sentence. And then he winds up working with you. And it's such a situation of strange bedfellows. And I think it speaks a lot to your coalition could you tell talk about that a little bit yeah what's it like working with neil voles it's a strange bedfellows that should not be strange Mm -hmm. um let me tell you neil uh is an individual who today i call my brother Uh, we're so interconnected that you know i tell folks that his mom adopted me uh, so now his mom is my mom, <laughs> you know, and I, uh-huh. I, I could I could tell the world I could look Neil in his eyes and I could tell him that I love him. You know, I, I really do love him because uh, he's a beautiful soul, you know, and his, you know, you, you talked about his story, you know, he from the Midwest um, in uh, from Ohio. I told him that's one that's one of the bad things about him because he's an Ohio State Buckeye. <laughs> but, you know, he grew right. up and got into politics and, and was a rising star. And somewhere along the way, he lost his way and he lost sight of the values that his parents uh, taught him growing up. And he paid the ultimate price for it. And the next thing you know, he found himself as a janitor in Southwest Florida, right? From a rising star in D.C. to a janitor in Southwest Florida. Uh, but that was, you know. That's incredible. But that's the story of God just preparing them to do great things. 
And so when Neil met me, I was actually speaking at a local community college in South Florida. And he happened to be in the area and he decided to sit in in the meeting. And he was getting ready to leave because he looked around and, and, and what he saw was it was a bunch of Democrats or progressives in that room. Like he uh, loves to say, he felt like a fire hydrant at an all dog show. but it just so happened he stayed long enough to hear me say a few things and um we we became the best of friends and you know we may not agree on everything and you know here he is he's a, a a white republican and i'm a black i don't know you know um uh i would say independent but we know how to deal with each other in spite of our differences, right? Uh, Neil and I's friendship is, should not be something that is uh, like a white unicorn. This should be the norm. And, and, and so what, what tears us apart or tears our heart is seeing how this country has become so divided. I mean, it, I mean, we talk about sports a lot too, you know, and, and you look at the families who half the family are Alabama Crimson Tide fans, Right. Mm -hmm. And the other half are Auburn fans or even Michigan versus Ohio State. Right. We we, I mean, there's divisions there, but those divisions do not overcome the common ties that bond us together as human beings. Yeah, we transcend those. But the politics, the politics are harder for people, I think. I mean, it, it cuts to the core of like what you believe in. But guess what, though? At the end of the day, that's exactly what we did with Amendment 4. We transcended the partisan politics. We even transcended the implicit racial biases. And we were able to connect with each other along the lines of humanity. And we were able to tap into what I believe is the most powerful force on this planet, even more powerful than hate and fear. And that's the force of love. That's so inspiring. I mean, it's true. You had to get at least 60% of the vote to get a constitutional amendment passed. You got close to two thirds of the vote. I mean, I think a lot of outsiders who maybe kind of heard that that was going on in Florida ended up pretty shocked on election (laughs) night. And it re-enfranchised potentially 1.5 million people. I mean, that's like the biggest re-enfranchisement in at least 50 years in America. Yeah. So- I mean, that friendship that you had with with Neil, in a way, is symbolic of that, the coalition building, right, that it took to pull that off. Man, let me tell you, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I look at, you know, the votes that came in. We got close, what, six, about 65 percent of the vote, uh, which is huge. Uh, but then we looked at the numbers and we seen that over 5.1 million people voted yes on our amendment. And that was more people for Amendment 4 that voted for the governor's race or for any of the candidates in the governor's race. So it, it turned out to be more important to people than even the the top of the ticket. There you go. And, and then on top of that, what we do know is that at least a million of the voters that voted yes on Amendment 4 were Republican. Right. Right. And, and so we that shows that we had the broad cross section 
of support for it. And then the, I think one of the other things, too, that a lot of people seem to ignore is the fact that here we had an issue, a very controversial issue in a very controversial state that have the potential to dramatically shift the political landscape in Florida. Yet we saw no negative ads against this uh, uh, amendment. There was no dark money that poured in to try to stop it. Right. Uh, there was no opposition, no major groups that was standing up in opposition of uh, our amendment. And that was huge. That is amazing. I mean, uh, why do you think that is? Uh, is it just too dangerous to go against democracy? I mean, that, that's an interesting <laughs> proposition in of hey, itself. Well, hey, well, we know that's not the answer. It's too bald faced. No, you know, that's not the answer because you're seeing it happening I, right I, now. I know. I'm setting you up here. <laughs> Yeah, we wouldn't have a show. I mean, yeah. we're called Democracy in Danger. That's right. So. No. That, uh, no, I think they're, that what we're seeing now, what we have been seeing, have been a very overt attempt to attack democracy. And I have to say that, you know, if we go all the way back, just like I said at the beginning of the show, that we find that on both sides of the aisle. It's just that this is the season now for Republicans to be leading that charge. Mm -hmm. But no, it was, a, 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 no, this is a very, you see it every day. So I think that the reason why there was no major opposition to our amendment was because we were able to keep it elevated above politics and we were able to, you know, there were folks that was, I'll give you a great example. There were folks that was saying that we had a beautiful bipartisan campaign, right? And I always used to push back against those people and say, no, we don't have a bipartisan campaign. And they were like, okay, we're sorry. What we meant was it was a nonpartisan campaign. Right. And I would push back then and say, no, we don't even have that. You know, what we had, and, and, and this is how I described, continuously described our campaign. We had a grassroots movement that welcomed and enjoyed bipartisan support. Now, the difference is in the others, you led with the politics. In ours, we led with the people. Mm. And when you lead with the people and you're able to bring people together from all walks of life and all political persuasions, that is difficult to attack. Right. It's easy for the parties to attack another party. It's easy for Dems to be against Republicans. It's easy for Republicans to be against Democrats. That's one of the tactics that these people that wants us to remain divided use these labels. They don't say be mad at your neighbor. They say be mad at the Democrats. Right. Be mad at the progressives. Right. Or be mad at the conservatives or the Republicans. But how many people or, or, or how many of these politicians say be mad at people, you know, be mad at yourself. That's not happening. And so we led with the people, which I mean, at the end of the day, how can you attack the people? You know, you can't you can't you can't attack them directly. If I could borrow just a little bit more of your time, I, I wanted to talk uh, some about where the coalition goes from here. I mean, let me put it this way. Over every silver lining, there's a cloud. And it was uh, dismaying after the amendment passed to see the Republican-controlled legislature try to undermine it by uh, making it difficult to have your rights restored, having people pay legal fees and sort of interpreting the law in a way that you know made it expensive for a lot of people. So um, there has been pushback since uh, the passage of the effort. And I'm wondering, you know, 
what are you guys up to right now? How are how are you engaging with that pushback? <laughs> well, first of all, where other people see obstacles, we see opportunities. And so our our response to the attempt to uh, hinder people from being able to register to vote through the use of of requiring them to pay outstanding fines and fees were uh, 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 several things. But the, the two main things that we did was we engaged in um, a fines and fees campaign. We were able to start that um, in 2019 where we had a two-pronged approach. Uh, prong number one was that we utilized the court systems uh, and the court uh, ju- uh, no judges were able to waive people fines and fees, which made them eligible to register to vote. And then, of course, we ran a fundraising campaign to raise money to help people uh, who were too poor to pay off their fines and fees be able to have that opportunity to be a registered voter. And I can tell you, last year, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, we still was able to raise over $27 million in the state of Florida. Wow. Now, they may be, that may be, uh, to some, a drop in the bucket when compared to the overall number uh, or amount uh, of, of fines and fees that are outstanding in the state of Florida. But $27 million is no uh, uh, nothing to sneeze at, you know. It, it, it was substantial, uh, and it was able to allow over 44,000 people to be able to have the freedom of not being forced to choose between putting food on their table or voting. Um, we were able to, in doing so, we were able to infuse uh, in Florida's economy over $27 million, which means that our organization uh, was the number one organization in the state of Florida when it came to uh, uh, infusing, I'm talking about grassroots organization, the amount of revenue that not only uh, uh, created a more inclusive democracy and cleared the way for people to participate in elections, but it also saved people's jobs. It also saved taxpayers' dollars, right? And so we were able to uh, demonstrate how people with previous felony convictions can in fact be assets to our community. We were able to demonstrate that when you are uh, advocate to improve the lives of the least among you, everybody benefits from that. You know, when we talk about the work that we're doing around democracy, it's not just around elections and it's much deeper than elections, you know, and, 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 and I was able to experience that last year myself, uh, being able to vote in my very first presidential election ever you know, and I'm in my 50s, right? And, and and thinking about the experience that I felt that when I was voting, man, I wasn't voting as a Democrat or a Republican. Man, I was voting as a human being that was validating my existence in this society and my worth, mm-hmm. you know? And, 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 and so we know that that restoring someone's voting rights and, and getting them registered to vote and engage in our democracy uh, goes way beyond politics, it really, I think, is the practice that will create even more vibrant communities, healthier communities, because the more people are involved in how their communities are ran, the more they're invested in it, right, the less detrimental things you would see them do. So having said that, and I'm going to drag you a little bit into the politics, but, but not <laughs> too far. What are the implications overall for Florida with this new amendment? I mean... Uh, it's a weird state. <laughs> uh, it's controlled by the Republican legislature. Um, it's also looking at legalizing marijuana. And um, 
other progressive issues are on the table. I mean, it's a even as they're like trying to stop federal vaccine mandates and limit masking in public places, it's you know, Florida man has become a kind of national joke. <laughs> but what? But 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 what? You know. Take t- talk a little bit about Florida and what this amendment means in that state in particular. <laughs> I laugh when you said it's becoming a uh, a, a joke, a national joke, uh, because maybe you too young to remember the hanging Chad, right? <laughs> oh no, uh, I, I, I was been... a reporter back then. I remember. Okay, that. I'm older than than I sound. So we so we have uh, been uh, a focal point of, of national politics for quite some time. Right. Um, but listen, I, I, I think that the you know, a lot of times when you think about reenfranchising one point four million people, there's some uh, there's automatic inclinations uh, that people have, you know, OK, and whether they're Republican or Democrat, a, a, a lot of the uh, misunderstandings uh, hover around who is being actually reenfranchised. Mm-hmm. I mean, folks are saying, OK, well, you know, we're talking about when people are released from jail. That's one misconception because, you know, the overwhelming uh, number of people who lose their right to vote are not even sentenced to prison. Right. Uh, Florida is on par with the national level where about 20, only 25 percent of people convicted are actually sentenced to prison. All right. And so that's one misconception. The other misconception is because people are thinking the jails and they're looking at the different stories in the news. Uh, there's a natural assumption that the majority of people that's coming out of prison are going to be African-American and that there's a natural assumption that if they're African-American, oh, they're going to be voting Democrat. So it's basically Democrats just trying to get votes for themselves. And it's Republicans trying to stop the Democrats from getting votes. Right. Lost in all of that politics is the reality that man what we were talking about is not about votes we're talking about real people's lives hmm. real people's lives and 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 people who uh, are you know you can't number one the prison population is only 25 percent you know of the population that's disenfranchised. So if you're basing your analysis on the prison population, then that's 75% of analysis that you're not even considering. Right. And so you're way off with that. And then the reality is, is that, you know, uh, in spite of what we see, I don't think that uh, people in prison are a monolith. Everybody's not going to think alike. Everybody's not going to vote alike. Just like, you know, listen, why is it that only black people are the only race of people who we already assigned to a political party? And that's that. You know, you can't look at a white person and tell uh, if they're Democrat or Republican. Mm-hmm. And you can't do it in any other ethnicity, but only African-Americans. And I think that's a falsehood. What I believe that the 1.4 million people and beyond would do, right, is not just shift the political landscape, but what I think it can do is actually shake up the political system, right, and force uh, uh, both parties to actually reevaluate how they're approaching their engagement with constituents. I look at the 1.4 million people as an emerging constituency group whose issues have to be addressed by both sides, especially when you're talking about even criminal justice reform. We have to hold everyone accountable, right? And what's more important than whether or what party a person is is affiliated with is whether or not they understand the difference between being a politician and a public servant. 
And I know that the constituency base that we're growing here in Florida is more concerned about whether or not a person is a public servant, because that's what we need more than anything. Well, so I got to ask you, are you going to run for office now? <laughs> what, what I can tell you is that that is definitely something that I'm seriously considering, uh, because I do think that, uh, you know, the state of Florida, I think this country need more public servants than politicians. Well, Desmond Mead, if I ever move back to Florida, you have my vote. Thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thank you so much for having me.